In our last episode, we spoke to Neil Johnson about casualties in human conflict. And we saw that even though there's a whole diverse set of reasons why we go to war and why we fight these wars, what you fundamentally find is there's some underlying system properties. And these system properties are defined by power laws. The same sort of power laws we saw in the metabolism of mammals in cities and in the sand pile model. Now in this episode, Neil returns to talk about conflict in the post internet age. But we're going to start by having a chat with Neil about physics and how he got interested in human casualties. Then we're going to have a chat to him about his own research on war casualties in the post-internet era. And then we're going to finish by talking about some of the perils involved in complex systems research. Because complex systems research is all about being multidisciplinary. And when you become multidisciplinary, you can end up sometimes sticking your nose into places where you're not exactly welcome. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Neil, welcome back on the show. Great to be back. So let's start with your background in physics. So as... Anyone who may have enjoyed or suffered through an introductory physics course knows there's a lot of talk about a ball being thrown in the air with a certain speed and a certain velocity and when does it hit the ground or one object hits another object and, you know, what directions do they go in, et cetera, et cetera. It's always about one object or at most one object hitting another. And if you think about kind of what we hear about particle accelerators and everything like that. All they're doing really there is also just kind of getting a really fast ball and aiming it at another ball. So it's always one object interacting with another. (laughs) So a lot of the physics that I did and that everybody does as an undergraduate is based on that. But we all know just from our own lives, it seems very removed from what we know socially. I mean, we're not individual objects going around and occasionally bouncing into another one. We have families, we are in social groups. And I always had this interest in what happens then when you have objects in groups and how the behavior of a group might be different from the individual objects. So run that forward. That was enough to get me working in a PhD that dealt with that problem. Now, it didn't deal with the problem of individuals. That wasn't called physics at the time. It was very much on the level of electrons. But there's a certain area of, if you think about anything that you have around you that, you know, like an LED or light or anything like this, that involves pairs of particles. The reason you see light out of your iPhone, out of any screen, etc., is because somehow Two particles have combined a a positive one and a negative one, and they've given off light. And those pairs of particles, we don't call them kind of a couple like we do in the social world. Um, We call them an exciton. And I studied these excitons in my PhD. But it's a very strange idea. 
because even in the materials in your iPhone and the materials in everything else that lights up, as I said, it, there isn't just one object of one and one electron and one hole. There are, there are whole sets of them. And in graduate school, we, we magically seem to change by chapter of the book that we were doing, looking at the world as though it was made up of an electron and a hole called an exciton, and then suddenly talking about entire populations of electrons and entire populations of holes. And they seamlessly went from one chapter to the other because, of course, that was the way that gave the right answer in some sense. But it always seemed to me that there must be a kind of much more complexity in the system as knowing, you know, like a, a social system. When is it we behave like pairs? When is it we behave like small groups? When is it we behave like everybody ending up on the beltway or the ring road around the city and we're all just kind of in some one great big mob of traffic? It sort of depends on the circumstances, depends on our interactions, depends on what's going on. So I always had this in the back of my head that this was an interesting problem to look at, but it wasn't physics. And so how do you do that problem when you're being paid to do physics? The answer is you can't, basically. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was only when I got equivalent of what will be a tenured job in, in Oxford that I could have some free time to start looking at this problem. And along came that problem known as the El Farol bar problem, which to me, well, to this day embodies what complex systems are because it's all to do with groups of people making decisions based on limited information, then their collective action decides the next piece of information. Imagine the situation of a supermarket, for example, or it could be a bar, but let's do it in the case of a supermarket. I want to go to the supermarket when, you know, I don't want it to be too crowded. And so I'll go at a time when nobody else goes, but everybody's thinking the same thing. So we're all kind of guessing what all the others are going to do. And of course, if we all make the same decision, we all use the same strategy, we all end up either going, terrible, congested supermarket, or not going at all, which A, we haven't gone to the supermarket when we need to, and B, the supermarket wouldn't be very happy about that. So it's remarkable that competitively among humans, we sort of have such a variety of strategies, and sometimes it's just, well, you know, I need to go and get some lettuce or something, that we end up kind of going on average pretty much in an efficient way. Now, this problem, the so-called El Farol problem created by Brian Arthur, Santa Fe Institute at the time, I was fascinated with this. And I would study it almost like on weekends and in the evenings because my day job was to do the one particle bashing into the other or one particle on its own or the excitons. But there was a moment when it kind of just took over. And this El Farol problem came along with an interest among particularly physicists and people in complex systems where feedback rules, looking at things like financial markets. Now, why were they looking at financial markets? Because financial markets go up and down, like the attendance at a supermarket. And sometimes they go up a lot. And sometimes then they fall quickly. And the statistics, the behavior, the distributions, as we talked about in the previous episode, didn't look like bell curves. They didn't look like heights in a room. They also looked like power laws. And so there was a lot of interest in what the mechanisms could be. So I came at this problem, not 
first thinking about conflicts, but first of all, thinking about financial markets. So we had a piece of theoretical work that we did that could kind of explain the behavior in the Alpharol model in terms of people forming crowds. And then there was a, a kind of crowd that had the opposite strategy, which you called the anti-crowd. And of course, if a crowd goes and then and people doing the opposite strategy stay at home and then they switch over, well, that's a pretty efficient thing for the supermarket. And it turns out that that's what people tend to do in the real world. So we were pretty happy about this. You were essentially modeling, I presume, an agent-based model of some sort, and you're modeling crowd behavior and crowd decision-making. Correct. But we were doing it actually with pencil and paper and mathematics. We were showing that the agent-based simulations could be explained with a piece of algebra that looked like just a huge crowd doing one thing and a huge anti-crowd doing the other thing and didn't matter how they flipped around, whatever the strategy would be. Oh, I'll go if it's raining and all the anti-crowd say, well, I'll stay at home if it's raining because everyone will go. And flipping around that, if those two crowds turn out to be pretty much the same size from the supermarket perspective, it just looks like you've got a constant number of people in your supermarket, which you're pretty happy about. So that sort of explains some of the financial market behavior, but it didn't have all the details. I mean, it, there was no details about buying stock other than, you know, you go to the market, it's like buying a stock and you stay at home. That's like selling a stock perhaps, but it wasn't detailed enough. So we changed the model a bit. And this is where it connects up to conflicts because we got rid of, for the moment, the idea of, oh, we have to have strategies. Because when you think of financial markets, always thinking of oh, people must have had strategies. And we went back to the idea of thinking, well, whatever their strategies are, they're probably not that good because, you know, <laughs> in the end, you know, some people make money, some people lose money, and then that's the way it goes. So let's just replace that by the important thing is how big is the group you're in? Are you forming in a big group? Are you forming a small group? And probably over time, those things will average out. And so we'll have people going into big groups, that group kind of breaking up and then them going into smaller groups and those smaller groups kind of combining with other small groups, forming bigger groups of opinion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly, when you do that, of course, you've got a model in which there's feedback where smaller groups are forming and then they're combining with other groups, forming bigger groups, and then the bigger groups can break up because the opinions after a while don't work. The strategy doesn't work for a long time. You know, it doesn't work for a long time. And so it breaks up and suddenly you've got a model of, it could be the, the population of traders as they form opinion groups maybe on kind of among themselves or, you know, by telephone and then they follow a certain strategy, then suddenly that strategy stops working. So they break up and then they go off on their own and then they combine with others. Suddenly you've got a model with feedback. And you're looking specifically here at group dynamics and the forming and breaking up and reforming of groups, whereas the L4L was very much strategies and what strategies individuals would use. But you're looking at something quite different here, aren't you? Correct. It's almost like a meta level. Instead of looking what individuals are doing with their strategies, we're looking at if you and I form the same strategy, we may be on opposite sides of the planet, but then we behave as a unit. So if we have exactly the same strategy, then given some external information, we will do the same thing. It's as though we're coordinated. We might be coordinated or we may just happen to have the same strategy, but we act in a market setting as a unit. 
we either buy at the same time or we sell at the same time. And so this got us interested in the idea that perhaps what's key, not only in the alfaro problem, not only in financial markets, but in complex systems in general, is it all about the correlated pockets of people that form that for a while remain kind of correlated together, they're kind of coherent together in some way, and then they kind of break up because the system has evolved, it's never static. So just running that model on the computer, it turns out that the distribution of sizes of groups, if I was to stop that simulation of people forming into groups around opinions or around a strategy and then sticking with that group until that doesn't work and then breaking up and leaving it and going off into another group, that dynamics, like the heights in a room, but now we're going to plot the number of groups of a certain size versus the size. So vertical axis, instead of the number of people of a certain height, or the number of conflicts with a certain number of casualties. Now on the vertical axis, it's the number of groups of a certain size. And on the horizontal axis, it is the size of the group. When we did that, we found, surprise, surprise, a power law. Now, that power law, unlike the conflicts, and unfortunately, unlike the financial markets, had a value, happened to have a value of 2.5. So, and in this case, for the distribution, the number of groups of a certain size was equal to the size of the groups minus 2.5. Now, in the previous episode, we talked about a 1.8 for casualties. I didn't have casualties in my mind when we were looking at this. We had financial markets in our mind. This was the 90s. We were interested in financial markets. We could get financial market data. And so we could compare it. And as I said, unfortunately, the model did not agree. So we sort of put it to one side. And then something quite remarkable happened because this is where we turn that story turns back to conflicts. After the Iraq war started and the second Iraq war started and Afghanistan started, it turned out that you could begin to get not what Richardson, as we discussed in the previous episode, had access to, which is the number of casualties total in a conflict. It turns out because of reporting, reporters, embedded reporters, et cetera, et cetera, plus the you know, NGOs, et cetera, the non-governmental organizations reporting conflicts, we could get a very crude value for the number of casualties per event in a conflict. And you're doing that sort of on, on an engagement level, are you? That's what we mean by sort of more granular and you're getting more information from the reporters rather than, you know, that so many thousands died. You're getting sort of daily tallies or engagement tallies almost. Correct. And in 2005, we hit on something pretty surprising. And to this day, I remember that day that we, we found it. When we plotted out exactly what Richardson had done, except within a war rather than across wars. So we were plotting on the y-axis now, the number of events within a given war, just to take a war, the Iraq war, for example, the number of events within that war that had a certain number of casualties on the y-axis and on, on the vertical, on the horizontal, it's just the number of casualties. We also found a power law 
like Richardson had found, but it had a slope of 2.5. Now, this was good news and bad news. This was fantastic news and terrible news at the same time. It was terrible because we couldn't understand why were we getting within a war, within this war in Iraq, which was still going on 2.5, and Richardson, when he looked across wars, so he was looking at the casualties per war, got 1.8. So I'll put that one on hold, the 1.8 for the moment, because we were just gung-ho, oh, we've got found this 2.5. Let's look at other wars. We need to look at other wars. We found it for the Iraq war. We contacted a group who were collecting casualty data in Colombia, where the FARC and the ELN were fighting a guerrilla war, narco guerrilla war. And we collected data from them. And we almost fell off our chairs. I think we did fall off our chairs when we plotted it because it also had a power law very close to 2.5. Now, this is work I did with my Spaggot in London. And, you know, suddenly we had a thirst for getting event data from individual wars. And around that time, because of the internet, because of these collaborations to get event level data in conflicts of all types, this was suddenly becoming available. So in 2005, I remember that we put out a quick report showing that for the Iraq war and the war in Colombia, I mean, very different, absolutely different motivations, terrains, etc. And among social scientists and his, I mean, almost like heresy to put the two together. I mean, why would you compare the two? I remember when we produced the results, I mean, they were arguing, well, is it a narco war? Is it a guerrilla war? Is okay, forget all the words, just look at the numbers. When you look at the numbers of casualties per event within a war, and you do that for Iraq and go and plot it, log, log, straight line, slope around 2.5. Do it for Colombia, log, log, straight line, slope around 2.5. There's something going on there. That means there's something going on. So we put out a paper and it was actually picked up by The Economist. They wrote a story on it. And I remember being called on the Saturday before it was going out, this article that the journalist who'd written the story said, oh, no, my editor is going to pull the story because there's a peace deal. This must've been around, yeah, it was 2005. And, you know, your 2.5 power law is not going to work because there's going to be a peace deal. And so suddenly it's not, it's not relevant. And I just said, well, I think it's going to carry on because it's, if the mechanism is true about people forming groups and, you know, kind of getting maybe bigger and bigger and more powerful and then being broken up, if, if we suddenly have put that into the language of conflicts, then in some sense it should just keep going. And of course, in the end, they ran the story and of course the war carried on. And to the end of that war, it remained as a 2.5 slope. But by this time, people were starting to send us data from all sorts of conflicts, conflicts that we knew nothing about. But all of those conflicts that we looked at showed a 2.5. We were sitting on an increasing body of data that every time we got the data, you knew data, you know, the heart would stop and we just plug it in, look at the log, log, plot pretty close to a 2.5. This was the situation that we had. I moved up to Washington. I was very lucky to then secure more funding from the Department of Defense, who became very interested in this. So we carried on compiling, looking for a final paper that we could publish where we had as many of conflicts as we could get. We did publish that paper. It showed that 
the power laws of all these different conflicts were 2.5. And we were also able to supply a mechanism, a model, an explanation for the 2.5. And that comes back from that unsuccessful financial model. <laughs> Because that unsuccessful financial model was really just built. It didn't have any of the details about markets. But what it did have is basically it was a model of a kind of soup of groups. It's kind of how humans get together into loose groups to do something and the group may grow, but then it may shut down very quickly. And suddenly in the context of conflicts, fortunately I've never been in the, you know, in the middle of one of these conflicts, but it seemed reasonable to take as the only two things we had in that model were that a group would gradually try to grow by combining in recruits, and then occasionally it may be disbanded. <laughs> We get into the verbal terms, which are so vague, some kind of violent conflict where there's an entity fighting a population that are not that well organized. They kind of, they're not set top down, completely controlled. They're, they're kind of forming into groups. They're doing attacks. They sense danger. They break up, you know, kind of like fish under the sea, like birds in the sky. They form into groups. You see them form and then they just break up in a moment and then they form again and they break up. Then they form again and they break up. But that's going on on all scales. That produces the 2.5. And suddenly that becomes a reasonable mechanism for explaining then the 2.5 that we observe in the casualties. So just to summarize that, Neil, because it's really quite profound, what you're saying is you did a piece of work on how human beings get together and work as teams and get broke up and form and reform. And that fits with the 2.5 that we see in real conflicts around the world, particularly insurgencies and that sort of thing. So you're saying that the number of casualties we see is not really a function of ideology or terrain, as you said, but it's a function of simply how we humans get together and collaborate and cooperate and stop doing that and just extend it into war and insurgency. Correct. My take on it is that it's not that those other factors don't play a role, but It's the same as with financial markets. I mean, let me go back to financial markets. It turns out that whatever you want to do with agent models, et cetera, and groups, and in the end, probably the best model of the way financial markets vary is to toss a coin. So the model of markets, the best model of markets is that there's a, basically it's a coin toss. And we use those models for everything, for mortgage prices, for, you know, my pension, everything. And nobody bats an eyelid. Of course, until it doesn't work when there's the occasional crash, which is the equivalent of the 500-foot person walking into the room. But on a daily basis, that works. And we don't really, nobody really questions it. But you put that in a very social and sensitive area, like not humans competing on the battlefield of buying and selling stock, but humans competing on the battlefield of actual violence. And it is a very tricky idea to convey. So the way I say it is it's exactly like what's going on in real markets. It's not that people are flipping coins. 
I mean, I, I hope my pension fund aren't flipping coins. They're making some kind of sound investment and maybe they are, maybe they're not. I can never really know, but <laughs> that, it will be strange if you put your whole pension fund into a large company that just had one coin and flipped it. But the way the market overall behaves is as though that's what people is do, are doing. It's not that any of these other factors like thinking of growth and checking stocks, et cetera, is not, not important. It's just that the overall behavior is as if people were flipping coins. So you take that over to our model, which is not people flipping coins, whether to fight or not, is actually a generative model. In other words, it, it can generate, you know, the larger the group, the more impact it probably has in terms of causing casualties. And so the group sizes become kind of, they mirror then the casualty sizes that they create, which is why then the 2.5 in group sizes mirrors the 2.5 in the casualties. There are other factors going on. There is the desert. There is the, you know, what time of the year that's being fought and the money and all this. Yeah, but all of those things, just as they can increase something, they can also decrease. And on average, there are probably as many negative you know, effects pushing it up as there are pushing it down and so on. In the end, it's as though they're not there, those effects. And the crazy thing is, is there's no difference whether we're getting together with other people and breaking apart with other people, whether we're doing a positive thing or whether we're doing you know, a negative thing like war. Correct. And so to test this out, well, that's a hard thing to do. How on earth can you do that in a conflict? Along comes the internet, of course, as a means not just for getting information about events in conflicts, but also as a means of coordinating groups. I happen to have a graduate student who was uh, Russian, spoke Russian, and was telling me about this platform called Vekontaktia, which is like a kind of parallel universe of Facebook, but run out of Central Europe. And was telling me early 2014 that she saw groups developing communities online on Bekontaktia, just like one might have a Facebook group that you could see, you can look at public information, it was all in Russian, also actually all sorts of languages. But there were groups there where people were developing trust and opposition to the US and to the Western world in some sense. Basically, we were seeing the start of ISIS's recruitment on Bekontaktia, playing out on Bekontaktia. Just like to measure whether water boils, I just look at the bubbles, the size of the bubbles. I don't need to look at every water molecule. So we were just collecting sizes, the equivalent of sizes of the bubbles. As physicists know, you know, when something's coming to boiling or a so-called phase transition, you look at the sizes of the bubbles and they cross all scales and they have something like a power law. And so we did exactly the same thing, watching online groups forming and sort of the system bubbling, coming to boil. So these are pro-ISIS groups talking about ISIS stuff, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And sometimes they would be just as you could imagine groups in a physical conflict being kind of scattering, like the fish under the sea when they're under in danger. Online, that was happening as well, because Bekontaktia had moderators who would come along 
and it's a difficult sea to kind of police. But when they came along these groups, they would shut them down. And so it's the members would scatter and go elsewhere, just like the fish in under the sea, just like the birds in the sky. And so when we looked at the sizes of these groups and we collected data on the size of the groups, we plotted them out and bingo, there was a power law of this one was so close to a 2.5. It was like the closest that we'd, we'd seen in any data. So, and we published it in 2016 in science. It was like the missing connection to 2.5 power laws within a conflict because suddenly now we were seeing how groups under stress, under pressure from being discovered do kind of bottom up formation of groups and so at any one time, there's groups of all different sizes because maybe they, you know, they prefer to join one group or another. It doesn't really matter. But then they dissociate, they break up, they fission of the group when it's under attack from a moderator. And putting just those two mechanisms together, well, we'd already done that in the 90s looking at financial markets. And that was what gave us the 2.5 at that stage when we were doing that kind of model. And this is real data. And so we, at that stage, felt that we had a complete picture, almost, of how humans do conflict, the kind of complexity of conflict. It's all to do with the dynamics of gradual kind of formation and then sudden dissociation, gradually forming up a group and then it breaking apart. And then we can fill in the rest of the words there when they feel in danger or where they, maybe there was a breakdown of trust or, but just keep that process going almost like in a box and you'll get a distribution that is a power law with 2.5 slope. In fact, you can show it pencil and paper, lots of pencils, lots of pieces of paper, but you end up proving that it is exactly 2.5. But we were left with one problem. Remember Richardson? Richardson had done something similar, and he had got a power law, but with a 1.8. So when we published our paper in Science with the 2.5, we didn't really worry too much about this because we said, well, Richardson found 1.8 looking across wars. Somehow that must have been a different kind of measurement or something slightly different there, and we left it at that. But it was a number of years, in fact, it was only a couple of years ago that we managed to kind of close that circle. So the way we did that, was as follows. So this result of 2.5 is a very similar consequences to what Richardson had for whole wars. It suggests that, you know, if you're planning within a war, within a conflict, so we published our 2.5 result in for a power law for Iraq and Colombia back in 2005, 2006. And then we added a few more wars. It came out in 2009 in Nature. We added even more wars and got the kind of grand paper in about 2013. But we didn't have an explanation for why Richardson had found 1.8. So wind forward a few years, during which people were having many discussions about with us about, well, what does it mean, the 2.5? And we were trying to say, well, you know, if you've therefore got an event of this size, you know, a Fallujah, if anyone remembers back to Fallujah in the Iraq War, it's like the 50-foot person walking through the door. It's not a surprise. That's the point. If you've got a power law, then you've got a plan for the 50-foot person. So within a war, you have a power law of events. You knew Fallujah was coming. 
Fallujah was going to happen. But how can we connect that 2.5 within a war to the 1.8 across wars? Well, it was pretty much on a skiing trip. Actually, I can't ski very well. So I do a lot of looking at the, uh, I do a lot of looking at the mountains and, and not much skiing. And it struck me that there's something interesting happened. So you can have all sorts of, although I've never been on one, a black slope, which is the steepest slope. That would be like a power, you know, that's like a log, log, plot <laughs> with, an, with an exponent of about three or four or something like this. But let's just say it's, a, you know, with a, a 2.5. And then I've got another black slope or I've got a red slope or something, and maybe that's about two of a slope. And then I've got a blue slope, the kind of ones I go on, the green slope, actually. You know, maybe got a slope of about 1.5 or something like this. But what struck me was when you look at all these slopes at a distance, like looking at these mountains at a distance. These mountains, of course, you know, they don't go on forever. They gradually, and this is the point, they gradually slope off and become, you know, Ohio or something like this, you know, something very flat. And so I had the idea that maybe it's something about putting together lots of power laws with 2.5s Maybe that gives you something that's like a power law, but with a lower slope, a smoother slope. In other words, I could take a whole bunch of mountains that were black slopes, that were really steep, put them all together, but they gradually kind of fade off the, the mountain range. In other words, going up to a higher scale, the mountain range itself kind of flattens off. So running this forward, what we did was we imagined that actually what's happening in a big war, it's lots of little wars that you're kind of sampling from. So the big war, and in fact, all big wars are just really kind of assemblies of lots of little wars that sort of merge into each other. You know, it always struck me as a bit weird when, I mean, particularly having to study English history and all that kind of thing. It was like, well, how did they know when one war, you know, it seemed like the whole thing was just a war. You know, it was like, it was always a war with France. It was always a war with Spain. How did they even know? Oh, this war's ended. Oh, another one's begun now. Then they kind of just like roll into each other, like the mountains kind of rolling into each other. And so what we did is when we took all the wars that we looked at that had slopes of 2.5, like the Black Slopes, and we sampled points from them, and then we put that onto a distribution as a kind of a big war, it came out with a power law around 1.8. And this was just a draw-dropping experience for us. Now, of course, there's lots of technicalities to this. It's like, well, how many points you're going to take? How many? But it was a fairly robust result. So what this says is that what Richardson was doing when he was looking at entire wars was he was really looking at an aggregated version of lots of little wars because he didn't have the data on the little wars. Right. He did not have the data on the little wars within those big things that he was studying. He just had like an overall number. So he couldn't see that fine detail on the lower scale. And it just happens to be an interesting result from the mathematics that when you sample events from a conflict that has a 2.5 power law for casualties for those events, you know, you kind of sample across all these conflicts and then plot that out because they all have slight differences of when they have the onset of the power law and all this kind of thing. But you just sample across that. It's not a great power law, but nor was Richardson's. 
you know, in some sense, people were debating for many years whether it was actually a power law. But you get something very much like Richardson's slope. And given that he was collecting data that may not have been entirely for the whole war and it may have been within wars, et cetera, it sort of closes the circle on why looking at a lower, a much less granular scale, a coarser scale, he was getting the result that he got and why looking at a much more granular level, we were getting the results that we were getting. So essentially he was getting the 2.5, but he just didn't have enough data. And because he didn't have enough granularity to the data, he was essentially getting a a 1.8 out instead of his 2.5. This is why I think of Richardson was really the father of this complex system. And it was very interesting because he went on to do work on the weather. I remember a picture that he produced. He had this idea that he would have people staring. I mean, imagine the whole sky across the globe broken up into little squares and he would have one person staring at each of these squares and he would take all the data and he would collect all that data from all these people and put it together and he would be able to predict the weather with that. I mean, in some sense, that's what we do now. You know, we've got this granular kind of satellite picture of, we still haven't got it down to the level of clouds, but we've got that kind of picture. But he was, he was really the kind of the pioneer of that thinking. I think he was aiming at that for warfare, but he couldn't do it because he just did not have the data. So what we were really doing all of this time, we've just been mopping up that program that he started. And what I love about this story, Neil, is it's it's just, you know, it's got all of the aspects to those classic complexity stories. You know, you start off looking at something that you don't think you're going to see an underlying systemic behavior because it's all humans and it's all different motivations and there's, it's chaotic. And you find this underlying behavior on the 1.8, which then subsequently becomes the 2.5. And then I just love the fact that you take a a set of tools and concepts from a totally different part of science. You go to economics and you try and model economics and suddenly you realize that the models you've built over there work and explain the data you have over here in war and tell us something fundamental about how these systems work. I mean, that's why we have complexity science. That's what it's trying to do all the time, isn't it? Correct. That is exactly what it's trying to do. And in that explanation, which is exactly why we do this, which is exactly what drives all of us, I am one of many, many people doing this, in it also lies its implicit difficulty because you're crossing disciplines with this. And I never realized how hard crossing disciplines is because of the resistance you can get from those disciplines. <laughs> so part of the problem is mathematical, part of the problem is algebra, part of the problem is data, but part of the problem is just the structure of disciplines. It's fascinating. We spoke to Brian Arthur um, on the show and he talked about the difficulty of you know challenging the um, neoclassical economic view and how it worked. And Talked to David Cracker as well about just the concept of Santa Fe being set up, that the idea that you have to get away from the disciplines to sort of lock down on, on the system, that you've you got to get away from these traditional disciplines. They're, they're key to it and understanding, but it's, it's trying to get away from just the one way of looking at a system 
to the many ways of looking at a system that you're striving for. Yeah, correct. This is still a daily struggle. I, without naming names, a very recent student of mine doing the PhD, one of the members of the committee, you know, hearing about all this complex system work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, sat there and I've got to ask you a question. So really, well, okay, the candidate trembling. And the, 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 the committee member said, where's the temperature? And it's like, I'm talking to you about conflicts. So, yeah, but where's the temperature? We're physicists. We have a temperature. The concept is of a temperature. What does it mean by temperature? Two ways of looking at it. It's a parameter in the system that sort of controls how close the system is to its equilibrium. It, it also controls the, the kind of order and disorder, the entropy side of things. So for a physicist, if something has a temperature, it's in equilibrium. And if it's in equilibrium, you can do physics on it and you can set physics problems on it and you can graduate and you can teach a class on it and you can have a degree in it. If something isn't in equilibrium, in other words, it doesn't have a temperature, you can't because we don't have any science for that. We don't have any physics for the systems that are out of equilibrium, hence the whole complexity science. But it makes physicists very uncomfortable. So each of the disciplines seems to be uncomfortable with complexity science for different reasons. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because when Brian Arthur was talking about his work, and obviously he had developed the L4L problem, as you said, biologists were much more comfortable with these concepts. But for them, the idea of equilibrium is, is kind of nonsense. For them, everything is just a process. And it's what's happening in the process. And I mean, what you're seeing here is that if we want to understand wars, if we want to understand insurgencies and, and, and the underlying mechanism beside behind them, we're really looking at how we humans or the process by which we humans form, break up and reform relationships and collaborate. Correct. I don't know how much I've spent on psychology books, but it's quite a lot up, up to now sociology books and economics books because I'm interested in what do we know? What does science actually know about groups of how groups behave? And the unfortunate answer is not a lot because there's so much emphasis on the strategy of an individual. But the idea that we, in all forms of life, and it's, it's actually hard to think of things that don't involve people forming groups, whether it, you know, whether and doing something, it doesn't matter what you think of. And there's not a lot that's said about that. To me, that's a kind of the frontier of, that's the frontier of complexity science and why it has so much to offer to these other disciplines. It's fascinating. I mean, so much of what you talk about just reminds me of Jeff West's work, particularly in the cities, when they found the power laws behind, you know, the cities. And we've, we've covered this in many episodes in the podcast. The idea that even though we've got all these very diverse cities like Paris and, and New York and Mumbai and Beijing, that, you know, the underlying rules are just incredibly similar from, from city to city. And, and that's what you're talking about here. And it really is interesting, isn't it, to sort of challenge people who've studied certain aspects of cities, certain aspects of conflicts and, and certain aspects of history to say, you know, come and look, come and look at your discipline from this totally other, very counterintuitive yes. perspective. That, that's, that seems to be a massive challenge. Yes. And I, I think the answer is they have to do concrete things that 
depend on the details. So a lot of the times these patterns we find, as we mentioned earlier, the, um, you know, the, the kind of effects kind of cancel out to some degree, but often those are the only things that they are charged to worry about or have a budget to worry about. And so there's, I, I really see the future as it's not one or the other, it's a kind of combination of the two, but definitely... Uh, coming together with complexity science is is definitely the future. It's not complexity science is not out to replace these other disciplines. It's but it's here to enhance them. Neil, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Waveland Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.